Rossmer. Hello everyone, my name is Umar Hamid and welcome to the No Limit Selling Podcast where we explore mindset, how leaders grow their people, their teams, their organizations, and their revenue. Looking for more? Join us on the Mindset Boosters group. You'll find the link in the show notes. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello, everyone. Today, I've got the privilege of having Meredith Powell here with me today. And I was just uh, telling her before the show started that uh, her website is gorgeous and the messaging is spot on. And I'll read it for you, dear listeners, but the link to the website is going to be in the show notes. Thrive, turning uncertainty to competitive advantage. And when I saw that, it made me think of a quote from uh, Baron Rockefeller. It was something like, when there's blood in the street, there's opportunity. And I think right now the world's in chaos and we are looking so much at what's not working that we're missing the opportunities that are before us. Meredith, welcome to the program. Thank you. I am looking forward to being here. So right now, so what's up when this whole thing started in March for us in the U.S.? Where in the U.S. are you? I am in Asheville, North Carolina. So I'm down in the Southeast. Nice. So I did uh, my last keynote would have been uh, beginning of March. And the very next day, there was a lockdown in the US and everything stopped. So for you, when things stopped, what were you looking at? And when did you kind of go, hmm, (laughs) I I teach turning uncertainty to advantage. How long did it take you to kind of go, all right, I need to practice what I preach. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I pretty much, um, you know, we're in a business that got hit hard. I mean, you know, you have your COVID blessed businesses that actually grew during the pandemic. And then you got those of us who just got the floor knocked out from under us. And my last day on stage was, uh, was March 7th. I couldn't believe that my, um, engagement for the ninth got went virtual. I was just shocked. And I flew back home to Asheville, North Carolina, sat there as I watched every engagement disappear and we could no longer make a living. So it took me, I don't know, maybe about a week to go from extreme fear to extreme anger to extreme action. And luckily for me, when I was a little girl, my mother used to tell me that the fastest way to get past your own problems was to focus on somebody else's. So I just started to 100% focus on my clients and decided I wasn't going to worry about what happened to me. So what's your mom's name? (laughs) Joan. Hey, Joan, thanks so much for doing that because what's amazing is uh, we used to do, uh, I used to run a company in California where we would launch companies in the US market and we would also do package design and do the whole shoot and match for their product. And sometimes I would go to Fry's Electronics, which is like a giant nirvana of electronic stores back then. And if you went to someone and said, yeah, can I have a second of your time? No one helped. (laughs) But if I started the phrase, could you help me for a moment? 99% of people stopped in the parking lot and said, yeah. And I'd say, which packaging do you like? This one or that one? And they immediately helped. And I think people want to help. And I when agree. you start helping other people, paradoxically, we help ourselves, right? Completely. It's um, it's completely how you find um, how you find the path forward is you focus on on really helping other people. And ironically, what happens is you find your footing. And I feel like that's a dance we've had to continue to do, right? Because March hit, everything exploded. Then around June, things started to get a little bit better. Then the bottom would fall out again. Then we'd start again. Then, I mean, you have to keep getting back on the horse. Marcus Aurelius, you know, he comes up in conversations all the time. (laughs) 
had written a book. I forget the name of it, but every chapter had this theme. It was like, you know, your family, you know, sometimes they disappoint you and sometimes they're no good, but at least you're not dead. Right. And then you're talking about business not working out well. At least you're not dead. That's and right. That's right. Ultimately, those stops and starts in this pandemic, which a lot of people have died, and I don't want to make light of that. But oftentimes we're so like, oh my God, it's so awful that if we look at, you know, I'm not dead. And- mm-hmm. There is hope yet. And how can I help other people? How can I move forward? And somehow we miraculously do. And Meredith, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever been on the edge of financial oblivion in your life? <laughs> um, yes and um, no. I mean, I certainly have been flat broke, but I've always yeah. been, but I've always been, um, I just would go and get another job. I mean, you know, certainly through, I dropped out of college. Um, my father said that was fine, but you have to support yourself, which I had no I, idea what that what's meant. What's his name? Let's do a shout out for him. <laughs> Ed. And, um, and, uh, and so there I was, I, I couldn't, in order to just pay the phone bill, I had to work three jobs. So I would say I've never been on the the edge of financial oblivion only because I would just go get another job. I had zero. Yeah, I have zero pride. I will do anything for a living. I mean, if you told me tomorrow, (laughs) I would, if you told me tomorrow I had to go pick up trash, I I would be okay with that. So I just, but I have, I have had to do things I did not want to do in order to earn money in order to pay my bills. So a long time ago, I was working for this guy and there was two worker bees, me and this other guy, and somebody had to clean the toilets. And there was a little bit of like fuss around it. And the owner said, here, give it to me. And he went and did it. And it was a really, really powerful lesson in never be the boss. No, that was not the lesson. (laughs) The lesson was that A, he demonstrated what he wanted us to do. He showed us that there's nothing beneath your station. And three, he did what a good leader should do is walk your talk. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's just, been a really good lesson. I just I just did a presentation yesterday for a group and it was called You in the Driver's Seat, How to Put Yourself in Charge of Your Career. And one of the things that um, I talked about in that is the fact that when I study successful people, one of the things they'll tell you is that they became successful because they became the employee that everybody would want to hire. And they came up with this term in interviewing them called strategic sacrifice, where you- um, I like that in, Yeah, I love it. And what that means is when your boss walks in and says, I need somebody too, the person who's going to go the farthest is the one who raises their hand before the sentence is finished. And if you can understand in your 20s and 30s, it's all about building skills, experience, and connections. And the more skills, experience, and connections you have in your 20s and 30s, the further you're going to go in your 40s, your 50s, and your 60s. In your lifetime. So a friend of mine, her name's Christina, mm-hmm. and she's just a wonderful, wonderful lady and incredibly successful. And she said, when I was starting out and work had to be done, I got in before everyone else. I left after everyone else. If there was a project came up, I did it. All the other women hated me in that company. But when there was a promotion, I got it. And I worked my way up really, really quickly, not by sucking up to the boss, but by outworking everybody. Mm-hmm. And that sets you for a mindset of succeeding. And I'll just share one of her stories with you because I think it's something we all struggle with. She was telling me a story about she's a successful woman and one of her friends uh, started this florist business just as there was an economic downturn and she's in trouble. And our hero, Christina said, you know, well, let me help you out. So she works with a lot of CEOs and it's a limousine service. 
and their admins booked the limousine. She says, I'll create a lunch for 20 of the admins to come in. We'll buy them lunch. You pick up the tab. We'll get a couple extra people and you'll get to basically audition what you do for them. And so they created this thing that lasted years and it grew everyone's business, but she wouldn't have done it for herself, but she did it for her friend. Yeah. And sometimes we do more for other people than we do for ourselves. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. I, especially women. Um, you know, I hate to single women out, but, um, but, but it's so true in, in coaching and working with so many women in the workforce, they will go to the mat for somebody else, but finding their voice and learning to speak up for themselves is, is just a real struggle. And I think you need to learn to speak up when it's time for you to, you deserve a promotion, but I also think you need to learn to speak up when you need help. I mean, we're talking about uncertain times and you may be challenged right now. You know, I'm a passionate believer that if you build your network, it will change your life. And I just really believe that at any moment in time, you're only one connection away from somebody who can dramatically and positively change your life. They can solve a problem, help you achieve a goal. And all you have to do is reach out and connect. I mean, we're emotional creatures. And if you need help, if you need support, ask for it. Yeah. And we don't even have to know Kevin Bacon. Like that six degree <laughs> of separations is a gone. And two, so here's a question for you, Meredith, and it's going to be uh, an interesting one. And uh, the question is this, is that we are all part of this culture that we live in and women are second-class citizens. I think they work harder. I think they're awesomer. My bestest friends are women, but they take on this role. And here's the question for you, is that their mothers are part of the system and most of them intentionally or unconsciously put them in the same mold that they were in. Mm -hmm. So how do we, in order to break that cycle, we need to be women that basically empower our girls to think differently. And how do we do that when we're part of a system? How do we get women to kind of go, wait a minute, we're more powerful than this. And before I hand it over to you, is that every single woman that I know, if I ask them that question, they go, oh yeah, I'm going to help my daughter do this. But the reality is when we actually go to do the doing of it and those subtle things, we still tell a different story. Yeah, well, I think it's because the story is different. Um, and, and and what I mean by that is, first of all, um, Ed, when I was coming up the corporate ladder, I mean, when I worked in corporate, I very much worked in a man's world. It was, it was all, in fact, I was the first female executive hired in and, um, and half the guys had a problem with me and half the guys were so thrilled that I was there. But even the guys who were thrilled that I was there, who tried to help me be successful, how I succeed is different. I was a single female at the time. I couldn't call men and say, would you drink a beer with me and discuss a deal? Their wives wouldn't like that. So first of all, the what we're trying to achieve is different. I don't ever want to let go of the fact when I come to work, I can't stop thinking about our children. My husband, he can just put it on the back burner and never think about it again. We're, we're different. And that's, and that's good. The thing that I think that we need to learn to step into our power, and this is the thing that I figured out, is the fact that I once I played the game and won, and what I mean by that is once I overachieved at the job, I could change the rules of the game. And what I mean by that is once I outperformed the people that I was working with, I could go to my bosses and say, I want to leave at three o'clock in the afternoon because my kids get home from school and I want to be there. I'll be back here at six to finish up, but I'm leaving at three. My male counterparts did not do that. But we get hung up in, in thinking we can't change the rules. But once you understand that you perform, 
you can adjust the rules. And I wanted to adjust the rules to live the life that I wanted to live. And that certainly is the rules that I've taught not only my daughter, but my children. Brilliant. And I think you would have gotten a definite uh, no had you asked, uh, had you performed like you did? And then had you asked, uh, would it be okay if I kind of, had you asked in that way, it would have been like, of course not. But because you said, hey, this is what I need. This is what I'm going to do. And it's just coming with that kind of chutzpah. And here's where I think most human beings miss their mark is that most people don't know who the hell they are. They have Mm -hmm. a sense of it, but they never took the time to go, this is what I truly 100% stand for. And if we know it, then when we get to those moral quandaries, I'm a woman, should I do this? Shouldn't I do that? All that stuff just goes away when you know who you are. And I think that's the first step to stepping into who we are is not outwards, it's inwards. I, I would agree with that. I also realized that the other thing I think is that people decide that the rules are unfair when they haven't played the game yet. I mean, when I coach clients, mostly they're trying to change. They want their bosses to listen to them before they have performed. And owning a company, I don't want to listen to any, don't tell me how to run my company differently until you have outperformed me. So the first thing you need to understand is you can make the game be anything you want it to be. But how you build your confidence, you have to play by other people's rules until you're more valuable than they are. And and I think we miss that mark. I always say you need to understand performance is power. If you want a voice, perform first. And part of the training, I 100% agree with that. And if I was a Brit, and I used to be, I'd say I violently agree with that. I'm not sure where that comes from. <laughs> not the African British, what can you do? Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. It's like in a lot of relationships. So if you and I were like uh, in a relationship, it's like, Meredith, I'm going to be the man that you want me to be if and only when you yeah. do this, this, and this. And oftentimes we take that family dynamic and we take it into work. It's like, well, when the boss listens to me and does this, then I will do this. And that's not how the world works. It's the way you described. Absolutely. We need to get in the game that's there and win in that game. And then we get the, okay, you're dealing cards now. What game are we playing now? And then you get to say, oh, the game we're playing is this. Yeah. You know, I was interviewing, um, I've got a book coming out in a month and I was interviewing a, um, a, 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 a very successful gentleman um, for for this book. And I, I, the thing that struck me about him is he just didn't sweat the small stuff. He just didn't, it wasn't a tit for tat. And I'll just give you an example. He's a golf course designer, a very, very famous golf course designer, mm-hmm. probably one of the most famous golf course designers. And he lives, one of the homes he owns is on a golf course not far from where I live in Western North Carolina. And they asked him, they were getting ready to redesign the golf course. And they asked him to come out and give him some ideas and do a proposal. He walked the course, gave them a bunch of ideas and gave them a proposal, which you can imagine was very expensive because he's designed courses Mm -hmm. all over the world. And um, they came back, hired somebody cheaper and took every idea he had and redesigned the golf course. And I said, didn't that make you live it? He said, oh, no. He said, all I could think is, thank God, I don't have to live on a golf course that I designed where everybody's going to complain all day (laughs) long. And it really hit me that he doesn't focus on stuff he can't control. Like, that was a cruddy thing to do. But the whole thing is, doesn't matter. It's out of his hands. And at the end of the day, the energy that he could put into the clients that are paying him or the new courses he's designing He saw a tiny silver lining 
in even the worst behavior. And that's a gift of successful people. If you're looking for it to be fair and just and right, it's why politics drives me insane right now, because you just can't make the world even. I mean, as a female, I'm so tired of hearing the things that have been done wrong to me, because I'll tell you, I get a lot of advantages because I'm a female and nobody ever talks about those being unfair. So you've got to focus on their silver linings and everything. And the difference between people who succeed and don't is their eye goes there and they move forward. I just, he had such a profound effect on me that I look at things I get upset about now and I'm like, I need to be Tom. I need to be Tom. I need to think bigger. A couple of things come up with that. A, thank you so much for sharing that story. I'm going to share it with other people. Yeah. Two is when you do get hung up on that negative, it changes you in a way that you show up differently for other accounts. And there's a good chance that you're going to actually end up getting clients that are dicks mm-hmm. or you're not going to win those because you're holding on to that. And it's better to get lose and be taken advantage of a couple of times. I'm sure it happens to him probably once in a blue moon. Oh, yeah. And the other thing is that the human condition has not changed for a very long freaking time. And there's a quote from Helen Keller that comes up and it goes something like this. I'm going to paraphrase it. It's like, when the door to happiness closes, people look so longingly at the closed door that they fail to see the other one that's opened up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's like, how do we look at the opportunities? And I'm going to give you a piece of advice, if I may. Yeah, that'd be great. Your mind. So here's an interesting fact. Guinness Book of World Records, and you can look it up later and fact check. Okay, the world <laughs> I will. fastest reader with 100% comprehension, how many words a minute can they read? And it's an ungodly number, like 82,000 words a minute. Wow. Which blows your mind, right? I can't even imagine. They use a photo reading technique. They take a snapshot of a page, and as they flip it over, their mind's processing what the picture was as they take the next picture. And it just shows you the power of your mind. Right. So a lot of times when somebody wrongs you, that our mind is like, I can't believe they did that and all that stuff. And your mind will deceive you. The thing to look at is in those situations is notice what your body feels. Where do you physically feel that thing? And wherever that is for you, just place your hand there Mm -hmm. and just in a quiet moment go, hello. And that feeling will respond back and say, okay, what's this about? And they'll say, oh, you were taking advantage of not just now, but when you were five. And all of a sudden, as soon as that information comes up, you can make peace with it. And then it just removes that button. And the next time somebody wrongs you, there's no button to push. Right. So our body always tells us the truth. Mm -hmm. Our mind deceives us. And it's such a good liar. Yeah, (laughs) it is. And it um, it it can really get you stuck. Absolutely. Because as soon as you realize whatever that truth is, then you're looking for that to be validated. And if you're looking for douchebags out there, God knows you're going to find them. them. And if you're looking for amazing, gorgeous, generous people, they're everywhere. You just didn't notice before. I, I do I do believe that whatever you're putting in your mind is what you'll um, you'll find. May I ask you a question? Of course. So why do you think um, do you think that people are angrier? now? Um, And if so, why? Um, Yeah, that'll be my question. Are we talking about COVID or we're talking politics? We're talking probably a mix of all. It it feels that, um, you know, when you just said, like, the moment you feel that somebody's 
wronged you. Just like in that story, I gave you the moment that you can back it up, bring it into your body, feel it, you can release it. And the moment you release it, then you don't, then you're not spending the rest of the day looking for things to validate it. Um, And, and it seems to me that we've come into a world where I'm angry about things and then I find opportunities for it to be validated all day long. And it just, it feels angrier to me than it did even five years ago. So here is, uh, bear with me for a moment. I promise I'll get to the point. Okay, sure. So if I was making a comment about your hairdo, mm-hmm. dear podcast listeners, you can't see the hairdo. It's gorgeous, by the way. Uh-huh. But if I made a comment that was derogatory about your hairdo, you're going to have one of two reactions. It's like, huh, what do you know? But if you had a negative, angry reaction, what that means is that we only get angry when we care. Mm. Anger is a sign of the caring. And so we go, okay, so why are people more angrier now than they have been in the past? There's more caring. And why are we caring so much right now? Here's why we're caring so much. This hypothesis I'm about to share with you could be total BS. So bear with me. Okay. <laughs> okay. We went from hunter-gatherers to farmers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were like, Meredith, what the hell are you talking about? We've always followed the animals on this path and we've always been fine. Why would we settle down and grow stuff? Because it was a fundamental change to the way we lived and it created a lot of fear, uncertainty on what's happening. And then we went from the uh, farming to the industrial, industrial to the technological. And uh, let's say now we're in the information age. I think technology information is kind of the same. Yeah. But I think we're not at a place where we're really comfortable that there is so much fear right now. Our computer is going to take our jobs. My kids, will they have a future better than mine? And most people right now in the world cannot answer that question as a yes. Right. So I think we're at this fundamental place where we have so much uncertainty that we live in this fear mode. And so when people wrong us in the slightest way, we react in fear and anger. And I think that's what we're experiencing right now. That's why all around the world, we have these people coming into power that are just, uh, some would say bad actors, Mm -hmm. but they're saying, don't worry about it. I'm going to do the thinking for you. I got your back. And this New Zealanders first. (laughs) And I picked them because they're not like that. Yeah. Kind of attitude is happening at this point. Because if it was just one country, you say, well, it's just one, but it's happening all over the world. Yeah. But I think what's happening is this, is that we are going to come, I think we're 20 years away from where everybody can take a breath and go, oh my God, we're not going to die. That this new, brave new world is so amazing. And just one thing that we have to look forward to, artificial intelligence So some people are scared of it and they may have reasons to, but one of the things artificial intelligence can do is say, let's take a look at like this watch that I'm wearing that you can see on our uh, video conferencing side of things is monitoring my heart rate. All that data from hundreds of millions of people is being collected. That AI is looking at that going, oh, three months before we can diagnose a heart attack, we're noticing these changes in heart rate that we're going to tell people on their watch. Maybe not, but I've booked a meeting with your doctor just to check this out, just in case. Right. That. And all these things, we think we're going to lose jobs, other jobs are going to be created. And so I think we are at this dangerous point right now with this fear, but I think we're going to come on the other side of it and we're going to be freaking fantastic. I, I would agree with that. And I think that it's it's one reason I started studying uncertainty because I thought that, you know, every 
every couple of hundred years, I think we go through this type of shakeup where it's a shakeup, where it's religious, it's political, it's society, it's business. It's just the whole world moves. Like you said, we went from the agricultural age to the industrial age and you have this, everything sort of gets sucked into it. But once it, once we shed all that, we flower into something even more impressive. Brilliant. Like, I want you to stay away from DPs. <laughs> Do you know what DPs are? No. So my, my mentor, he's passed. I used to live in Canada, and he's Polish. Uh-huh. And when they came into Canada, they were the latest set of immigrants. And the latest set of immigrants are always the bad people. Oh, and yeah. DPs were their displaced people. Yes. They're here to take our freaking jobs and they got disease and they're going to do these horrible things. And it's just the people that are there, these new people are coming. And then from when I went to England, uh, when I was like three, we were the new people coming in and we were the bad actors. And thank God the Vietnamese boat people came (laughs) in. They were the bad actors. We were okay. So yeah, we've been through uncertain times. We will be. And I think that's where I had mentioned earlier that we need to know who we fundamentally are this is what I stand for. This is what's important to me. So when those challenging times come, we don't lose sight that, hey, I'm here to help people. Mm-hmm. Not help I, some I people, not help my people. I'm here to help people. And when we lose, that may be something in somebody's kind of vague consciousness that I'm here to help people. But when you don't know exactly what it is and you get to those crossroads, it's like, oh no, those guys I'm not going to do. When we knew we're here to help people, it's like, I want to help more people and it doesn't matter who you are. Exactly. And when you, when you, and and I think, again, I think we're coming full circle back to the path. If you're stuck right now, if you're fearful right now, take the focus off yourself and just ask yourself, who can you reach outward to help? One, it's it's like, it is instant that you start to feel better because you're not focused on your own problems. The other is that is where the answers are. That's where the path is of what you're supposed to do next, where you're supposed to go and where your future lies. You are not going to find it sitting in the house worrying about um, all the things you have to worry about. I will leave you with one last story. And the story is I used to have this radio show, Life Changing Breakthroughs. And when people would talk about those, and I had a friend and I said, hey, Jim, have you ever had a life-changing breakthrough? And he said, oh yeah, when I died on stage in Singapore. I said, really? They had to actually revive him because he wow. died. Oh and, I said, well, and he says, as soon as I came out of that, I realized that, you know, the corporate path wasn't for me. Earlier in his career, he was on, you know, uh, what do they call those people that the Peace Corps? He was in the Peace Corps oh, yeah. and he lost sight of that. And he says, I went back to helping people. And this was the, the question that uh, I asked him that I want to share with you. I said, oh yeah, having a heart attack, that's, you know, pretty, that's a pretty big, big sign. Were there any signs before that told you you were on the wrong path? He says, I didn't see any of them but there were billboards with flashing lights. (laughs) And I think we don't see those signs, but when you take the moment to help someone else, what you realize is the universe sends them in our path. And by helping them, we realize, oh, and we get that lesson that we need to. It may not be their lesson, but it's a lesson for us. And today was such a joy having you on the program. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you. I've really, I've really enjoyed this, uh, really enjoyed this conversation. And the only thing I want to add to your story is I think, think sometimes too, when we're locked in the fear, I think we miss the signs that we're on the right path as well. Um, we just miss all the signs. And, um, and I'm going to say, if you go back to your body and you listen to your body, your body's going to take you where it needs to go. But it's been a great conversation. It's been a great show and I've really enjoyed it. Me too. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. And if you're looking for more tools, go to my website at nolimitselling.com. I've got a free mind training course there that's going to teach you some insights from the world of neuro-linguistic programming, and that is the fastest way to get better results. 